0: And welcome back to Lighting the Pipes Thank you very much for joining us today Today's episode is going to be a quick, taut shocker Much like the book that we're covering It is The 39 Steps by John Buchan The first of the Richard Hannay adventure stories And joining me as always is my cousin and reader-in-arms Across the pond, Joshua Taylor
1: As always
0: (laughs) How are you doing, buddy? Are you excited here to talk about this one?
1: Yeah, I think this should be a. I think this will be a fun episode. Yeah, uh, just kind of a first impression to give our listeners. The book is very short; it's like just over a hundred pages. Yeah, I know this is a, over.
0: I know this is a podcast, Josh, and our listeners can't certainly see this, but just hold up your cover for me. You've got a. Is that an Oxford's world? That's right. Nice one. I like your cover. Uh, I've got an old, uh, uh, a deliberately vintage Penguin. I like um, your
1: cover better because there's like yeah. bit, I don't get this train on the on the
0: front of mine. It just <laughs> doesn't, I mean, he the train scenes train. Train. in the book are limited, aren't they? And they're quite ephemeral. Yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: But, uh, or just let me see, see like the...
1: an old model Ford or something on the front. I don't <laughs> well, know.
0: that's what I got, isn't it? Yeah, like an old uh, Citroen or something. Anyway, exactly. sorry everybody, that's a that's a terrible chat for a podcast. But we're
1: just we're just, we're, we're just comparing yeah. the covers of our editions. Indeed, is, yeah, is, you know. is all.
0: We haven't met before to talk about our impressions, nor our books, so it's, uh, it's just a chance for, for that catch-up. But yeah, thanks everybody for, for checking out our episode. We hope you enjoy our little review of this book. It, it's a fun book. Say whatever else you want about it. We, we think that you're going to have good time on the journey with us. The journey, by the way, as always, will eventually result in us ranking the pipes of the story and I'll let Josh say a little bit more about that in a moment. But we're also going to provide some fast facts on um, John Buchan and some fast facts on the publication of the story as well that you That's can right. put away put away in your uh, your noggin.
1: Yeah, you got some ready to go for us, some fast yeah, facts sure that, ca- that care about our feelings. Um, <laughs> I will point out that this will also be a patriotic episode, and I think your fast facts will definitely mm-hmm. enlighten mm-hmm. some Canadian listeners who haven't heard of John Buchan.
0: Yes, absolutely. They will um yeah i mean buckham was a really really interesting character and I, I i suppose you know in starting out it's worth recognizing that um i live in the part of scotland now where the story takes place uh the southwest and galloway and it was a story that i first read josh i picked up this book when i moved here um yeah shall we should we just get into an introduction to the story then yeah we decided to add it to our reading list this year because it was quick, because we knew we could do it quickly. We thought, yeah, why not?
1: I haven't heard of John Buchan. When I read about him and made the connection with Lord Tweedsmere, it, mm-hmm. it made a lot more sense to me. But I actually really, I've only known about The Three Nine Steps only because I know that it was a Hitchcock film.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: that was my only connection. Yeah. So I didn't realize that it was a novel based prior to that, but it kind of makes sense. I mean, Hollywood's mm-hmm. always been that way, adapting novels to screen. So why not The Three Nine Steps? Which I now understand has a lot more significance to it as a early twentieth century spy novel thriller or shocker, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. our friend Bucken says. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to uh, hear all about um, Thirty Nine Steps.
0: All right. Well, let's let's you, get down to you it. Take then. it from here. Yeah. Okay. John Buchan. Some fast facts. He was born in Perth, Scotland, on the 25th of August, 1875, to a Church of Scotland minister, John, and his wife, Helen. He grew up in Fife, which, incidentally, is the same place that Rankin's Rebus comes from, and he spent his summers in the Scottish Borders. He studied at Hutchison's Boys Grammar School in Glasgow and earned a scholarship to Glasgow University at 17 years of age, where he studied classics. Uh, a man after your own heart, Josh. Mm-hmm. He started publishing writing shortly after this and soon moved on to Oxford University, where he furthered his studies in classics, graduating in 1900. He immediately entered into diplomacy and the public service, becoming the secretary for Alfred Milner, who was the high commissioner for South Africa. He became part of a group of civil servants there, affectionately known as Milner's Kindergarten, who were regarded for their commitment to the South African Union and its imperial links.
1: So this would be like the Boer War.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Conan Doyle, our friend Conan Doyle, knows a thing or two about that as well.
1: I'm sure, kind John Buchan even mentions Arthur Conan Doyle in the Thirty Nine yeah. Steps, mm-hmm. or Sherlock Holmes, anyways. So, mm. they might have been contemporaries.
0: Well, they were contemporaries as writers, because Holmes is. But,
1: but, but did they know each other? Like mm. that's well, what, I, what, I, what I'm curious to see.
0: Upon returning to London, uh, Buchan became editor of the Spectator magazine and started of the Spectator and started writing again. When World War One broke out and wrote for the War Propaganda Bureau and worked as a correspondent for the Times in France. In 1915, he published his most famous work and the subject of this episode, The 39 Steps. The following year, he went to the Western Front, where he was attached to the British Army General's Headquarters Intelligence Section to assist with writing communiques for the press. He received a field commission as Second Lieutenant in the Intelligence Corps. A year later, recognized for his skills, Lord Beaverbrook, Max Aitken, if you uh, if listened to our Ian Fleming episodes on our sister podcast, Bond by Numbers, you'll know Lord Beaverbrook and Max Aitken as a connection to the Fleming years. Uh, he appointed him as Director of Information, which is a job that Bucken himself said was the toughest that he ever had. So if we think about Buchan at this point in his life, his career, he's mingling and rubbing elbows with the very powerful, the very influential figures, politically and socially. After the war, Bucken focused on adding more historical writings to his resume in addition to his thrillers and Hannay-style adventures – in 1927, he started his political career in full, I guess you could say, being elected as a Unionist Party MP, working to improve Scotland's position as an emerging nation within the United Kingdom.
1: Yeah, he was a Unionist. <coughs> like, he was for yeah. Scotland being independent, but part of England at the same time. Keeping That's its right. culture, keeping yeah. its traditions, but also being part of, of the British Empire, not separate from it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This led to several advancements, Josh, within the political and religious institutions that he worked, such as the Church of Scotland. And in 1935, which is, incidentally, the same year that Hitchcock adapted his 39 steps into film, King George V ennobled Buchan as Baron Tweedsmuir, a ceremonial step which prepared him for imminent appointment as the Governor-General of Canada, working for the Empire as British Viceroy with Prime Minister Mackenzie King. Now, he served in that post from November of 35 to February of 1940. And in fact, Josh, Canada, in large, we have Buckin to thank for the Governor General's Literary Awards, which he started and which remain, unless I'm mistaken, Canada's premier award for literature.
1: I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, also, Buckin was, even though he was against war, he didn't like war personally from what mm-hmm. I read about him. Um he was the man, like the figure that gave Canada the green light to enter the Second World War. Yeah,
0: that's uh, right. Mm-hmm.
1: And he, he died in Canada. Like tw- like there's a big, and he loved Canada too. Like even though he was Scottish uh, and he went back home to Scotland, I know they love Canada. Uh, Tweedsmere Park in British Columbia is named after him.
0: Yep, it certainly is. Uh, Buckin died in post, or Tweedsmere, I should say, died in post after suffering a stroke and a related head injury in February of 1940. In the 21st century, uh, and we will get into this a little bit with our discussion, I think, of the 39 steps, Buckingham's writing and the character of Richard Haney have fallen under some scrutiny. Chiefly, he's challenged by several for being racist, uh, a little anti-Semitic, and all, yeah. uh, outwardly Scutter's colonial. speech at outwardly. the beginning was like, yeah, geez, really hit is. me when I read it. Yep. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get into that, but yeah, that's just some fast facts on John Buchan, and I know I know that I kind of rapidly move through them. But something we're looking to do as we move forward with these new authors on our show is to spend certainly the context necessary when there's a story going on, but maybe just get to the get to the meat and potatoes of our episodes a little bit quicker, streamline our fast facts and our context a bit. Mm-hmm. So, um, if if now you're happy, we leave Buchan behind, at least historically speaking, biographically speaking and move on to the 39 steps, um, I can give you some publication information on that, and uh, then we'll slide into a summary, which I've prepared before thrashing out the pipes.
1: So when was it... You mentioned that it was published in 1915. That's so this right, this was yeah. during the First World War. That's right, yeah. So it wasn't before the First World War when, when this was published then? No. Because I find that really interesting. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I find that interesting is because... In terms of history, the catalyst to the First World War was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in Mm 1914. Now, it was done by a member of a terrorist group called the Black Hand. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: in this book, we have a Balkan leader assassinated and an organization called the Black Stone. Yes. And so, it, that, there can't be a coincidence
0: there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's one of the reasons I think why, uh, on the nose, this book was so well regarded among the troops in the trenches. You know, it, it 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 created a facsimile of what they were fighting for. You know, and what they were fighting against.
1: I can see that it's a very strong propaganda piece yes. in that way. Yeah.
0: Well, keep and, in mind that Buckin worked for the propaganda bureau, so he knows what he's yeah. doing. <laughs>
1: He knows what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. He's patri- patriotic to the very end in his own way, and uh, apparently soldiers would write to him, and they they would love just like you know they're sitting they're sitting in the trenches, mm-hmm. you know, and if you just imagine what the trenches at like the Psalm and
0: yeah sure Ypres
1: yeah. and all that you mm-hmm. pray would be like you know just terrible, but you know they they're writing what his writing was a form of escapism. Yep, absolutely to them. And I keep thinking you know of, of an author that was very much molded by his experience in the First world war, and that's j. r. R. Tolkien, and he would have been in the trenches in World War One at the Somme. and maybe he was reading the thirty nine steps, you know, sitting yeah. there when he was coming up with just the basics of you know, his great opus that he would write, you know, twenty years later or so so mm-hmm. it's a, it's a tr- interesting to think about.
0: Yeah, that family cookbook, right? That's the one you're talking about, that family, the family cookbook.
1: Cook- that. The Tolkien <laughs> family cookbook, yeah. It's yeah. very, very long and has a lot of information on the off- on, on things that don't really have anything to do with cooking. Mm. Um, unless you count the Hobbits, they definitely enjoyed their cooking and their singing, though. So I, I guess did, yeah. it could be argued in that fashion.
0: <laughs> anyway, the 39 Steps, yeah, Josh, it was serialized in Blackwood's magazine in August, September of 1915, published as a book the next month by William Blackwood and Sons in Edinburgh. Blackwoods Magazine, by the way, uh, ran from 1817 to 1980, if I got my dates right. It was kind of like a miscellany, a magazine conceived, I guess, as a rival to the Edinburgh Review, which was a Whig publication. So you can see... So this was a Tory... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or at least a Unionist piece, right? A a Unionist piece, yeah, Mm -hmm. I can see that. It's the first Richard Hannay adventure. Buchan wrote it while he was ill with duodenal ulcer, a condition that would follow him really throughout life. Um, and Buchan drew a lot on his own experience, if you think of Hannay, world politics, intelligence, South Africa, international work abroad, to compose the story. He called this a shocker, his own term, which he described as a story that mixed political and personal drama. He also said that shockers involve events that are just on the edge of believability. Now, Josh, this makes me think, uh, for the second time so far this episode, of Ian Fleming, who claimed that the best of his Bond stories are improbable but not impossible. And judge- Like giant squids, for example. Like giant squid. And judging from today's sensibility, I think that shocker is maybe, uh, you know, a little overdramatic, but I can definitely see how the 39 steps qualified as more intense back then. Because shocking.
1: If we're speaking prosaically, yeah, I kind of please. found that the writing reminded me of... Sherlock Holmes it reminded me of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's style in many ways and how he was describing it was I felt like Watson was descri- in moments there is Watson telling me something that's happening that yeah, he yeah. you know like I just I just kind of felt that um, same kind of narrative voice was was present here and right. I guess that's the standard narrative voice they had for thrillers they were very taught. They were Mm -hmm. very Mm -hmm. uh, straightforward. Um, And you know, the heroes went and did this and they got that done. Simple as that. There wasn't Mm -hmm. any sort of in-between Duplicity. Duplicity. There wasn't much complexity beyond that. And that's what you sort of get with this story, you know, despite our maybe a want for a little more. but Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: It's a certain time. It's definitely a time-traveling episode for us because you think about The Quiet American where you have characters of such uh, shaded and shadowy proportions that they're, they're, you know their their moral compasses are not quite established in a firm direction and here we've got a character whose moral compass couldn't be more erect to pardon the pun it couldn't be more upstanding you know
1: mm-hmm. oh absolutely he's in- infallible mm-hmm. like they're, yeah, they're all, yeah. like a. I know the the female term is yeah is mary sue but i a gary stew is, is what <laughs> gary, this character is to me gary
0: stew i love it he's gary stew yeah This book has never been out of print. It's regarded as a classic in both the crime adventure genre and British literature more widely. It's been adapted no less than 20 times over the years for radio and at least five times through film and television, including Hitchcock's influential film, which we can talk about a wee bit at the end of the show if you'd like, starring Robert Donut and Madeline Carroll. And in April 2021, Netflix announced that Benedict Cumberbatch would star in a new adaptation of the story.
1: Interesting.
0: So, yeah, very interesting. I could find no more news on the development of that news story, though. So if, if anybody out there listening has got some facts to check with us on that, let us know at lightingpipes at com, or uh, find us on the socials. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, look, guys, that's just a quick rush through some publication information and some biographical information. As Josh says, Buchan, as the governor general of Canada, had a huge influence politically, socially, not just in the world and government of that country, but also of his own. He was a fascinating figure. And now, certainly, the lens of criticism is shining on him. You know, his, his work and his legacy is is under investigation, I yeah. guess, by by the critics, you could say. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, they're they're going back in the past and they're finding yeah. a man who has lived in a colonial atmosphere and they're taking yes. hints yeah. of racism and yeah. other th- and bigot- bigotry and stuff. Really? You're finding that in someone who was raised <laughs> yeah. in the British Empire?
0: And you're amazing. I'm really
1: surprised yeah. at that. I'm, it's, it's a <laughs> shocker. That's yeah. a shocker to me. <laughs> yeah,
0: um,
1: yeah. I will say, though, for those who aren't Canadian listeners or even Canadian listeners who are not, you know, comprehensible to it, but um, the governor general is really what makes Canada apart from... The uh, other democracies across the world, because it's basically the Queen's representative in our parliament. Mm-hmm. Back then it was he was the king because he was under George V and George the, the sixth afterwards. And briefly, Edward, but that didn't last very long. Um, so it's, it's basically we still have a governor general to this day. And it's just uh, part of the Canadian parliamentary structure that we always have. You know, the British Empire is always reminded to be part of Canada because we are a part of the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why this particularly resonated with me, because John Wilkham had a part to play in the history of Canada. So very interesting.
0: Yeah. Why don't we slide over to the summary and after start thrashing out our pipes and uh, I'll let you explain to the listeners what exactly it is that we're rating here in this quick show. Oh, yes. Now, I feel the need to issue a caveat here with this particular work, even at the risk of starting off this summary by showing my full or partial hand. You know, there is escapism, and then there is escapism. Suspension of disbelief is a trademark feature of much fiction and literature, regardless of genre. So, when The 39 Steps begins with its fast pace and conveniently serendipitous motivating incident, we're pleased to play along with the unlikely exploit of Richard Haney. But when Buchan asks his reader to stretch beyond suspension, somewhere into the realm of stratospheric zero-G abstinence, one's disbelief is forced preposterously onto a naked stage. Indeed, Buchan's Britain is one populated by only about a dozen people, a few working-class grunts, some upper-crust elites, and a handful of dangerous uninvited foreigners. Forget its 209,000-square-kilometer area, Buckens' Great Britain could fit inside a Starbucks for as many different people that we actually meet. Oh, sure, the populace is there, in exposition and broad strokes, but that's about it. And, in fact, it is this, the story's spirited cachet of few-folk coincidence, that ultimately lends brick-and-mortar to the story's timeless unbelievability. And even for a thriller... A shocker, to borrow the label given by the author himself, The 39 Steps does ask a lot of both contemporary and modern readers. Then again, one doesn't pick up a Richard Haney adventure for a flavor of verisimilitude. It's the bumpy coach ride through the outrageous that they're after. Moreover, I understand and appreciate how this idealist heroic narrative became a favorite among troops in the trenches of the Western Front during the First World War. But I digress. Caveat over. Let's consider how all this comes to be. Richard Haney has returned to London from South Africa, when the story begins, where he's earned his stake with some mining operations of what's vaguely revealed as the British South Africa Company. But London really bores him. In fact, he's fed up with socials, gentlemen clubs, and champagne lunches. Good news for him, because just as he's planning to get himself out of Old Blighty, he's visited by an American spy, Franklin Scudder, who claims to have knowledge of an international plot to destabilize Europe. Buchan hurries over Scudder's reasons for involving Hannay in this plot, just says that he looked like an honest sort of chap. Well, this is the first of many myopic, because-plot moments in the story, which we'll just need to go along with. The specifics of Scudder's knowledge involve the Black Stone, a group of German spies who intend to assassinate the Greek premier Constantine Karelidis, during an upcoming visit to London in the middle of June. Well, Hannay is charmed by Scudder, and he lets him lay low in his flat for a couple of days. And across their short tenure as perfect stranger roommates, Hannay and Scudder share some interesting chat over the myriad intrigue of Scudder's collected notes. I suppose for a rich and entitled bachelor, this constitutes the sort of breaking boredom daring do that he's after. Well, fast forward a couple of days, and Hanny returns home to find Scudder murdered in his flat, a knife dug straight into the back. Afraid that notifying the authorities will tip off the plot and encourage that dastardly German spy ring to disappear from Britain altogether, Hanny decides to take matters into his own hands, and flees London in disguise as a milkman with Scudder's ciphered notebook in hand. Of course, in doing this, he heaps a whack-load of unnecessary suspicion and responsibility onto his shoulders, but he appears game to pick up Scudder's torch and take on the Blackstone's evil scheme himself. Taking a quick look at a map, Hannay decides that Galloway, one of Scotland's more rural and isolated regions, would be the perfect place to hide out from authorities at least until the 15th of June or so, when he'll return to spoil the anarchists' attempts on Caralides, and so to Scotland, Hannay's and Buckins' ancestral home, for the majority of the story's action. He quickly learns from a newspaper in a shepherd's cottage that he is suspected of murder and is being sought by police in Scotland. He does some train jumping to throw off the scent, and eventually stops at an inn where he builds quick trust with the keeper at least enough to tell him a watered-down version of his story. And this is the first, but certainly not the last, episode of We Just Met, Would You Like to Hear My Story? Trust, extended by our protagonist. But his judgment always seems to turn out just fine. Anyway, Hanny is by now being pursued by an airplane, but stays at the inn for a few days, and in that time manages to crack the cipher in Scudder's journal. Two men show up looking for him, though, and after a little cat-and-mouse scene, Hanny returns to steal their motor car. He tours a little bit, but doesn't really know the area, and nearly gets into a crash, ditching the car off a cliff. Conveniently, wealthy landowner Harry Bullivant was driving the other car, and takes Hanny back to his manse, where the men talk politics and indulge in some fine patrician scran. After learning about some of Hanny's deeds in South Africa, Harry invites him to give a speech at a party political meeting being held later that afternoon in support of Bullivant's electoral ambitions. Hanny's impromptu TED talk raises the roof, even outperforming Harry's own, and earns the other man's trust completely. Upon returning home, Hanny bears all to his host, and Harry writes a letter of introduction to a relation of his in the Foreign Office that might come in handy later. Harry leaves the Boulevard estate, well-fed and reinvigorated, hopeful over the prospect of another couple days in the southwest Scottish wild. But he's quickly spotted again by that darn aeroplane, and soon sighted by some trackers on the ground. The search is intensifying. Luckily, he meets a road mender at that very moment, named Alexander Turnbull, and thus begins what might be the story's most preposterous section— after a quick exchange, Turnbull agrees to switch places with Hanny to avoid getting caught hung over by the New Works Surveyor, whose arrival is imminent. The symbiosis of these random encounters is becoming quite silly by now, but we're carried along by the sincerity of Buchan's first-person narrative, and the naive wonder that maybe, just maybe, there's a road-mender or a rich politician out there for all of us when the going gets tough. On that very same stretch of road, Hanny meets an acquaintance from London. Because, plot. He's a stuffed-collared upstart named Marmaduke Jopley. Yeah, you couldn't make these names up, could you? Hanny threatens Jopley, takes his clothes, and drives his car a few miles away before jumping out and leaving him frazzled. Hanny takes his sleep that night on a hillside and wakes up to continue his journey on foot among the glens and follies. His pursuers aren't long in picking up his scent, and follow him towards a cozy cottage, but the man inside helps Hannay hide. When the coast is clear, Hannay meets properly with the old man, but it's all feeling a little too fixed. Pregnant pauses punctuate the scene, and a foreboding sense of expectancy lingers, as if Hannay was always going to end up here before this man, with the hawk-like eyes. Uh Uh-oh. The eyes. That's it. Hannay remembers a note from Scudder's amazing narrative, the man he dreaded most in the world could hood his eyes like a bird. And here is Hanny before him, or one very much in keeping with his description. The man addresses Hanny by name, but Hanny is already ahead of him, having adopted a new alibi in the moment and sticking to Bluff as Ned Ainsley, a sailor making his way to Wigton to visit his brother. Hanny is well fed and observed by the man and his two associates, but eventually is led by gunpoint into a storage room. Happily, this room is filled with Lentenite and other explosive ingredients with which he grew accustomed during his time in Rhodesia. Weighing the options, Hanny decides to blow his way out of the room, and he does so, spending the rest of the day on the ruined roof of a nearby mill. He returns to Alexander Turnbull's place under the cover of darkness to recuperate from the explosion and to reclaim his possessions. He then says goodbye to Scotland and heads south taking his chances with the Foreign Office and Sir Walter Bullivant, who happily receives him after being given the letter written by his cousin Harry. They discuss Scudder's notes, but learn that Carolides has indeed been assassinated. Sir Walter travels to Scotland Yard with Hanny and clears his name of involvement, but Hanny isn't terribly satisfied. In fact, he's downright grumpy and agitated, and as luck would have it, again, he runs into Marmaduke Jopley, and starts a fight with him. This only gets the attention of the police, and Hanney is forced into the run again. He hightails it to Sir Walter's house, though, and finds him in a meeting with several officials, including the first Sea Lord that's head of the Royal Navy, for those of us uninitiated folk. As the first sea lord departs, Hanny exchanges glances with him, and grows convinced that he's one of the evildoers that pursued him through Galloway. Hanny presses the issue, and the impostor is soon confirmed because, wait for it, the real First Sea Lord is sleeping in his bed. Dun-dun-dun. Well, the race is now on to stop the impostor from escaping Britain with state secrets. Hanni, Boulevant, and allies comb through Scudder's notebook. They conclude that the repeated reference to the 39 steps and a time... 1017, must have something to do with a departure point on the nearby coast and a plan for escaping at high tide. Well, they enlist the help of a coast guardsman and narrow their searches to an affluent location in the southeast. They find a spot with 39 steps to the water and a tidal pattern to suit that time. Plus, a yacht called Ariadne is moored below a property. The authorities approach and seize the boat, which is captained by a German, while Hannay deals with a trio of men within the property itself. Now at first, these men inside play dumb, and perform their roles almost well enough to convince Hannay that he's wrong. They neither act, nor look, nor sound like the men of scheming means. Doubt creeps in as he accepts their invitation to play bridge, but as the game goes on, an affectation of the hands on the old man signals that Hannay's been right all along, and sure enough, as ten o'clock passes, the trio grow more and more restless. Hannay sounds the alarm, the disguise is dropped, and the three black stone figures are arrested. No British secrets were lost, though the greater game still took the life of one Greek premier. But who's thinking about him right now? Hannay's daring do has won the day. Hooray! John Buchan ends his novel with a pat touch, quickly issuing the point had Britain entered the war three weeks following these events with Richard Haney a commissioned captain. And thus ends the adventure of the 39 Steps, setting up Richard Haney and John Buchan for a series of stories to follow.
1: Well done, Scott. Another one for the books. Mm. (laughs) No pun intended.
0: Well, um, I I did feel a little bit self-conscious there when I was doing the summary, because I I couldn't help...
1: It's kind of a review.
0: Yeah, I I, I couldn't help myself from just stating, you know, the ridiculous nature of some of these plot conveniences. But, you know, we're, we're dealing with a story that's over 100 years old, and it was written for a different purpose, perhaps, than, you know, modern thrillers today. And that's part of the joy of doing this show with you, Josh, is that we get to investigate, you know, not just... Um, different sub-genres of crime, but also the history of the genre changes so much as well. Thrillers okay. and, you know, straight crime and gothic crime and stuff. So anyway, um, hopefully you and the listeners found something good in that. But um, now, my friend, we're, we're about to deconstruct the pipes. So why don't you give that customary review or that customary explanation of what the pipes is all about?
1: Ah, uh, yes, here we are again. So... Mm-hmm. PIPES is an acronym for principles, investigation, or story, perpetrators, environs, supporting characters, secondary casts, what have you. Perfect. We have five points for each category.
0: Yeah, gives us a total of 25 that we use for scoring our stories and structuring our reviews. And we're going to start off here, Josh, with the principles, and I'm going to let you go first. What should people know about your feelings of a Richard Haney?
1: Richard Haney is what I think many people today would call a, a, a Gary Stew, or for the feminine a Mary Stew. or just in general, a kind of heroic archetype character that was prevalent at this time period. And even up upst- when it comes to certain things, you know, it depends upon what you're writing a novel for. If you're writing a novel that doesn't really deal into their political ramifications at the time that it that it was written in. That doesn't really deal with any delivering any kind of cultural message or social message or that's not really a parable in any sort of way, whether religious or non-religious. And you don't you're not really telling a story because you're emotionally invested in telling a story. Yeah, yeah. Then Richard Hanney is your type of character. He yeah. is a one and done. You wouldn't even compare him to Bond because Bond has more complexity. Uh, Sherlock Holmes has more complexity. He's an audience surrogate for people who want to get in there and get the job done and enjoy a swashbuckling adventure. And that's basically what Richard Hannay is. And to me, as a principal, uh, he's a two.
0: Okay. He's a two, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, any, I, any favorite I, I moments? Or, a, uh, well, a two would be just sub-pass.
1: There was nothing in the story about his character that surprised me, other than even though he claims to be a Scot, he knows that you don't really feel that he's a Scotsman in his in in the writing. You feel that he is an Englishman, or he's trying yeah, really hard to be
0: one. Yeah, that's interesting. and
1: I also noticed that there was when people react around him, they treat him as an Englishwoman woman. <laughs> And English <laughs> Do <men>. they? <laughs> That'll be a far interesting story. Just go going there right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, origin of Mrs. Delphire or something. I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, you heard it here um, first. Yeah, yeah, you heard it here first. <laughs> Thirty-nine <laughs> steps would be difficult to ascend if you're in a skirt, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that said. Mm-hmm. Um, like to everyone else, he appears as an an Englishman. (laughs) It seems that he's treated as a low class, but he's still respected by it, which is kind of a a fantasy surrogate character for the audience as well. Because you know that like a soldier sitting in the trenches in Belgium somewhere is is going to fantasize about the character and they're going to be off into his adventures. And all of a sudden they're going to see that, oh, well, I'm a Scotsman, I'm an Irishman, I'm fighting mm-hmm, for the mm-hmm, English, but mm-hmm. if I help them with this great case, I'll be respected just like one of them, and I'll be one of their peers. No, my friend, you're going to the trenches. That, I yeah, guess simple yeah. as that. Yeah. And yes. uh, the character is almost like a... He's a propagandic tool, is what he is. I don't know that makes him sound like I'm calling him a tool, but I, what I mean I'm really saying is that—is that he is a MacGuffin in the fullest sense of the word.
0: Yeah, he really is, isn't he? I mean... But it's, it's funny, you know, you mention some of these other characters and archetypes. Like, he is sort of a pre-Bond figure, in, in, and right down to his ancestry, you know. He's he Scots yeah. by uh, author's design, really, and and not not much more. He, we know that Fleming read his Buckin as a schoolboy, and while his character is less impulsive, um, maybe, and works within the law instead of out with the law, there is some merit in this comparison, I think, Josh, because, like, I, I don't know which Bond I would... I would compare him to maybe Pierce, Pierce Brosnan's Bond, because he's got a Snickers at the baddies and he enjoys his lucky moments. And he kind of like, you know, he has that whimsy about him. That's like, oh, I just got out of that. You know, like there is that about Brosnan's Bond as well. But I don't know. I mean, is there anything in this? Am I am I just blending the podcasts that we, we do together? Is there I mean, is Richard Haney a literary ancestor? Is the literary bond a descendant of this character in any way?
1: I don't know, because I feel that Fleming lived a different kind of life than John Buchan did. Like, John Buchan was first and foremost, like, um, I mean, they served military careers and whatnot, and they did some extensive work overseas, private school upbringing. But you can tell, though, that that deep down, Buchan was a patriot, and he was involved in the government. For Fleming, it might have been, you know, patriotism is part of it, for sure, but it was also a way of career, it was a life for him, whereas Buchan seems like he took very much big stock into bringing out the Scottish Unionist uh, feeling in in the in the United Kingdom. He took great pleasure in all the endeavors and the the awards that he received and the honors that he received. He took great um, he had great he held himself in great esteem. And I don't think he was an alcoholic. There's no evidence of that in his career. I don't think he was a womanizer. There's no evidence of that in his career from what we know. Uh, very late Victorian. Uh, moralistic individual was John Buchan, even until his end. And, you know, there might have been skeletons in his closet. I mean, everyone has them, I suppose. But Mm -hmm. at the same Mm -hmm. time, he was also creating a character that was meant to be a propagandic, uh, like like a tool, like a A tool, yeah, an an instrument, a tool for propaganda, an instrument of propaganda. So he wasn't really interested in making an exciting or complex character out of here. As he says, he wanted to make a boy's story. Like that's... Essentially, what he wanted to do here, he wanted to create yeah. a young lad story to get, you know, to get the boys to the trenches, something to read, something to escape to. And mm-hmm. and, and that's what he did while at the same time uploading a lot of um, propaganda for the British in World War One
0: yeah. yeah.
1: in this story, you know, and, put, and putting that in there. So and anyway, by the very fact that it shows that Hene went and served in the army afterwards. And then, of course, these boys who are reading these books in the trenches are reading... Are serving in the army. That also makes that also gives more of a of a boost to my idea that Heine is meant to be the target surrogate audience that he was going for the okay. the young men, the soldier, the soldiery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah. I probably probably saying that soldiery. Yeah, there we
0: yeah, go. I, I got you. I got you. So you don't really think there's much in that potential comparison. Well, do you? It seems like I, I you're- do think I, I think there is a little bit, yeah. And I don't like hmm. in okay. in terms in terms of that um, thinking on your feet impulsivity. I think that there's a bit of that in the Bond character. I mean, I just come back to knowing the Pearson biography on Fleming, and I know how big a fan Fleming was of Buckin's work, and I just think that there is some of that. There is still some of that, you know, strictly British daring do about the Bond character. The the
1: travelogue aspect is definitely in there, how he describes the environment. That's in there for sure. Well, how about Uh, this then, buddy? I just feel like...
0: Sorry, I was just going to say, like, well, how how about I defer this way? What about Holmes? Do you think there's much Holmes in the character? Certainly in the writing, we've discussed that. And one thing we haven't in the, discussed in really the writing. Yeah, is the uh, the chapter titles. Each of them sounds like its own great Holmes short has, story. You know?
1: Holmes has quirks though. And you can even read a Sherlock Holmes novel and going, even though, like, I mean, it's telegraphed a lot stronger in the television yeah. and movie adaptations, you can tell right then and there that Holmes oh, yeah, is being a yeah. prick. He's mm-hmm. being a prick and he's uh, he's not... He's quirky. He's quirky. Mm-hmm. He's eccentric. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't get the notion that, that uh, this guy Henné mm-hmm. is eccentric no. at all. No, straight I don't have any laced. feeling that yeah. he has an inferiority complex because he's Scottish and he's living in England, and he's looked down by the upper classes, and he wants to prove to them that he's better. I don't get any of that at all. All I got is a guy who who wants to serve his country, and then that's well, He was that's taken out of Scotland when he was six,
0: remember. He was taken out of Scotland when he was six. He was. I mean, he, he refers to it uh, almost conveniently as his, his native land, but... You know, he spent so much time. I don't know if I was taken out of my if I was taken out of Canada at the age of six. I don't think that. Anyway, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, okay, maybe maybe this is a moot conversation. Um, I would Not just really. like to no,
1: it's it's okay. uh, you know we're we're presenting our we're presenting our uh, you know we're presenting our, our cases for what we think of the of the Richard Hannay character. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you say that.
0: You say that he's he, he is a straight-laced kind of no-nonsense guy, but he does seem to enjoy giving people the runaround and he does take pleasure in his own little he does, his own little successes on that front.
1: He does. Yeah. Maybe he, uh, he wants to do his best and you know I can see that, but I found the writing was just so of its the character sketches that were given of him is so superficial that I couldn't get anywhere mm-hmm. below the surface. Like yeah. I really wanted yeah. to connect with this guy and even while I was enjoying how like Bond, he fought on his feet and was mm-hmm. able to get himself out of these predicaments. A lot of it is because, and unlike Bond, there was no, like, I don't know, spy craft or any sort of demonstration of mm-hmm. uh, this character would, not ha- would have to use his own, not just his wits, but just simple physical dexterity to survive mm-hmm. a situation. <clears throat> and there are moments in the book where he does that, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden, though, like when something else comes along, he then has deus ex machina after deus ex machina after deus yeah. ex machina. Yeah. And it's almost like there's guardian angels being sent down him to uh, help him on his way, you know, throughout the story. Like, it's very traditional. It's almost Cambellian in some ways in terms of how mm-hmm. the story is presented. Because you have a lot of donor figures coming in and bringing the hero onto his journey, right?
0: Yeah, the way I think of it, Josh, is like um, that—you know—that video game, that analog where you're you're moving left or right across the screen, and you keep getting these power-ups, right? He just keeps getting (laughs) these mushrooms (laughs) that that build him back up, or like these places to hide out, and I think that does. And then maybe that's a you know that's a product of convenience because of the story that he's trying to write. I know, but it's exactly. But I think you're right. Though we don't really see him survive or rely on his skills so much. When he spends a night in the cold or in the wild, we're just told that oh, he's all right and he spent his night on the cliff. But we don't get any sense of the struggle. We don't get any stream of consciousness. I mean, we don't. I realize that's a more, you know, it's a more modern development maybe in prose fiction. But we don't get any of that sort of character writing that might help you understand or identify with yeah. his his tenets right and his philosophies and stuff it, of survival exactly. it's just kind we of just like know, go from a to b we know he's
1: a patriot we know that he's a quick thinker we know that he's good on you know he's quick on his feet we know that uh, he's very good at blend is very good at making acquaintances mm-hmm. he has mm-hmm. charisma probably because he does, he's yeah. not unattractive yeah, they don't ever really yeah. describe his facial features or whatever he, there's no like Modesty. There's no modesty in his character. I think that's one of the things that kind of irked me about it is mm-hmm. that there's no modesty to his character. It's like, I'm going to do this and I got it done. Oh, I'm going okay. to do this. I got that done. I'll, oh, I'm going to go and do a speech while I'm hiding out from the bad guys. I'm going to do a political speech and, <laughs> yeah. and, and blow everyone away in the room, even the people who are already trained at it, right? So, like – I don't know. Yeah,
0: no, you're right. It's He's just like...
1: Are we, are we seeing bits of John Buckingham himself there or something? Maybe. Like, is he, trying? he
0: stumbles from maybe. one success to another, yeah. But he does, though, as a character, he does have agency in the story. And I think that some of the luck that he finds along the way is deserved. But but it's just hidden from the reader a little by the distraction of just how serendipitous and coincidental his, his you know his favors become. I mean, we should applaud him for his handling of the Alexander Turnbull stuff, like the road mender, because he he really negotiates that swiftly and cleverly. He he does. And again, although it's ridiculous that he's there, the way he recognises and utilises the explosives, you know, um, that's great. And white-knuckling it during the bridge game at the end with the villains is also a good scene. And isn't it interesting, Josh, I mean, just to lay into my theory, that Bond... Outwitted Drax at a bridge game in Moonraker. I'm just saying, it's there.
1: Or or Chifra. yeah, in it's a, Royale. Yeah. But, I would point yeah. out too that, like, I think the reason why we got DSX MacInnes, yeah, you know, he gives the he gives the young boy, like the young soldier, something to read about. Yes, uh, something mm-hmm. exciting to escape from. And it's exciting, but it's never depressing. He doesn't get a situation like he doesn't like. In, as soon as something dire happens to Hane, it's he gets out of it. Even like when he's incarcerated mm-hmm. in the in the storage room, and he breaks out the Lentenite and then he and he blows it up and whatnot. Right? That is not a lot. That is there's not a there is a, a very short interval between when he gets locked out, locked up, and then when he escapes his mind never stops it's always going right mm-hmm. he does get sick he does get cold he does get injured and he relaxes uh but at the same time is only, it's, only, it's like a reactionary right i just don't yes, get any kind of anxiety it is reactionary and, yeah and it is and anxiety level. to his to his yeah. character
0: no anxiety no modesty i, I yeah, no, no depth we're, we're digging really, deep because of that yeah
1: we're, we're we're trying to find something in in richard Hannay that may not be there or may have been perhaps suggested by the author we're digging mm-hmm. deep and, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's good, but yeah. I don't know. Is there something there? And I guess that's mm-hmm. the big argument. <clears throat> well, uh, two, I, like- I think two and a half, I would say, is probably as generous as I would go for okay. the characterization.
0: Okay. Cool. Well, What did you I, give I, it? I gave it a three and a half. I I like Hannay enough to want to read another one of his stories. Like, he's, he's bluffing. I just think he's a likable rogue. I think he wants to do well. He is not deep or dynamic, but I have fun following him around and I don't necessarily like him, but I have fun following him around because I'm always wondering, okay, what's going to get him out of this next time? You know, now, I mean, he could be anybody in this situation. Maybe I just, maybe I just like the adventure. I don't like him so much, but I, I do, I do think that there's enough, <clears throat> there's enough in there for me to say, yeah, like he does have to take matters into his own hands and Um, at least (laughs) at least a little bit at the end to make things work. Like, although the Ariadne is already captured by you know, the authorities uh, the Coast Guardsmen he does sit around that house and he does call their bluff for a long time and he does ultimately get them to drop the guys and he blows the whistle and I I do like that I, I like that he sees it through himself where he didn't have to and I'm not.
1: I found in the in the last part of the book is when he, I was somewhat intrigued by him a little bit because I liked his bravery and he really showed that. And to me, like his bravery prior to that was reactionary; it was survivalist.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. And,
1: and he did what he did. It and did what he did how to survive. And you got to tell a story, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But him volunteering to go into the house himself and and facing his confront his you know his, uh, his tormentors and England's tormentors, I felt that was definitely. Uh,
0: the there propaganda was enough swing building, in, his,
1: yeah. in his in his character. And there was also enough swing in his character, and I was starting to kind of okay, this guy's not bad. You know, maybe he was maybe in the next book he'll be fleshed out a bit more, mm-hmm. perhaps. Yeah, yeah. But
0: well, hey, I, I'm we, not. Uh, I'm not. I'm not petitioning for for any any changes to score. I don't think two and a half is harsh because I agree he's very thinly sketched, and I'm actually really liking your read on this as a stronger propaganda tale than I did. Um, Obviously, I'm aware of its historical import in in that way and the way it was used and you know welcomed by the troops in the trenches. But I hadn't really thought of its construction in or with as much of that motive as perhaps Hannay or Bucken did have, you know, in constructing it. So I, I think you're onto something, and that um, for the purposes of this first story, just an experiment. He didn't need to go deep, and we maybe are going deeper than than the character deserves. But um, he does at points have agency, and I like the balls. In you know, he's he's got some ballsy moves later in the story. Although I must admit, like Marmaduke, Marmaduke, when Mar- when Marmy shows up the second time out for a night on the town with the boys, um, that is silly. Like, that's why he gets in that fight, why he decides just to, you know, start a fight and then have to run from the cops again. <laughs> like, that's a bit.
1: Yeah, dumb. it's almost like he's trying to save the world, then, like, he's almost like he's Marty McFly and he has to go and get back and, you know, get back to the future <laughs> just in time, but then he runs into Biff Tannen. <laughs> like,
0: it is, yeah. Yeah, something that's, like what, that. that's, what
1: it, that's what it feels like.
0: All right. Well, I went three and a half. You went two and a half. Um, no problem there. Let's. Um... <laughs> Let's move on to investigation. What do you think? This is the story, the plot, the structure, the adventure itself, and the writing. The writing.
1: So the writing, I don't really have much issue with. It was mm-hmm. descriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, the characters came in and out in a way that was very functional and thematic, and it worked for the story. Um, the overall plot, I found kind of mystifying. Like I found that, like, yeah, they stopped the German spying in the end, but at the same time, like. Really? I mean, they assassinated the Greek prime prime minister. (laughs) Carolides is dead. Carolides is dead. And even then they mentioned, I think, like halfway through that that Carolides was just a distraction. So what was their plan anyways? They just wanted to see what the reaction was in the Privy Council as to what the reaction would would be once Carolides is dead. And they wanted to know it and they would go and take that back. Is that what happened? Like. I, I, I don't know. Like uh, the story, I found very confusing to me. It was it was basically constructed to get Hannay from one place to another, or at least to get him into the third act where he arrives in London with uh, uh,
0: Bolivant. Yeah,
1: yeah, with, with uh, Bolivant, and then he goes on the on the mission to infiltrate. The house in in St Margaret's Bay or wherever it was, right?
0: You're thinking Moonraker, <laughs> but yeah, that I that know.
1: Area. But it, it, I was reminiscent of that, complete yeah. with like the the submarine. Well, not the submarine, but the boat, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of reminded me of it a, a, a little bit.
0: Uh, and isn't it interesting, Ariadne? The the yacht the the Altair was the name of the yacht in Colonel Sun, but Ariadne was a female protagonist from Greek from Greece. It's quite interesting the way that the uh, Buck and Bond and they're all in there together somehow. I'm well, that also you. shows
1: his classic. You mentioned he has a classic. He went, he studied yeah. classics to Glasgow. Yeah. So obviously he's very familiar with this tale of Theseus and the Minotaur, right? <laughs> so an Ariadne's role in that, right? Cause she's the one that gave Theseus the string to uh, escape the maze, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, going back though, again, it's like all these co- coincidences and stuff like, so, Scudder dies in the apartment mm-hmm. and then he flees to Scotland before he, so that he gets back and t- so he can so he can be discreet and avoid incarceration and therefore uh, which would then allow, you know, the, the villains to succeed. So he goes north and then by running into certain people like Jopley, for example, or yeah. just, or <clears throat> the enemy is still following him or knowing where he went. They're following him by, by plane. It just so happens that the the main villain has like a house in Scotland <laughs> as, as, as well. And he yeah. runs into them. Like they were leading him towards there. Like, yeah, I exactly. understand he's kind of, where that, you know, Hene is playing with tropes and it's not supposed to make sense. I talked about before, you know, how like when Stan Lee was creating his comics, uh, early Marvel comics, the whole point when he was telling either Ditko or Kirby, it's like, I don't. It doesn't matter the logic. We're just going to get to the next panel, like, and that's kind of what.
0: Yeah.
1: That's the kind of writing style yeah. that we're dealing with. It's the, that pulpy sort of boyhood thrill. Yeah. That's I will true. give credit towards Hannah's character and maybe in terms of the writing to Bucken is that there was no love story in this story. There was no. There was no like you know femme fatales. There was no no women. Uh, no women really except like an old lady I think was what, yeah. appears once or something right and gives them board. So I'm wondering, is that like also propaganda in its way too? Saying they don't want them, to, you know, to fantasize about women, so they go get you know, VD somewhere like in a town in France or something like that. I think, like I that, think
0: right? you're onto something, man. Yeah, I think you could be onto something. Strip it down away from distraction. Just keep it about good versus bad. Yeah,
1: late Victorian, late you know, Edwardian sort of, or Georgian. I, I guess it would be Georgian, right? Because George V, yeah. So you know that Georgian. Idea of, discre- of of discretion of purity, I suppose, in that fashion, and and they also wanted them to be faithful to their wives and families back home too, right? So they didn't want to escape into that type of fantasy.
0: Yeah, no, you're right, man, you're right. Um, and Buckin's style is a little bit tongue in cheek. Like I think there is a recognition here on his part that he knows, at least at some point, that he has written a ridiculously convenient yarn. Uh, maybe he doesn't want his readers taking things too seriously, like you're suggesting here. You can um, see how he's
1: having fun writing it. I, I feel yes. in his writing. I feel he's enjoying mm-hmm. what he's writing. And you can feel there's, there's a kind of a, a giddiness, I suppose, to the story totally. and whatnot. And there's a bit of an excitement. I was kind of like going along with it to the point where like, to, to the point where I'm all of a sudden where that's it, like, suspension of disbelief i just can't <laughs> hold on to it anymore man yes it, it's it's yeah. gone up in the air like a world war one zeppelin yeah, yeah you know like it, <laughs> well that, it's, that's that's uh,
0: right and that's what i was saying in in that in that summary like there comes a point where enough is enough and too much is too much but i do wonder josh like how much has the modern zeitgeist ironed out the fun from reading because Maybe we come to these stories, expecting and demanding and just feeling as though we should be given more depth, more Something seriousness, you. yeah, like why yes. is it that especially in the cultural I go shadow into the
1: hypocrisy of that,
0: yeah, but you know he's writing he's writing at a time where guys like Sir Frederick Barnaby and all these other sort of gentleman adventure types from the late Victorian era were real Alan heroes Portemain. were yeah exactly they were but. But, I mean, Frederick Barnaby was a real man, you know, his work in the Khyber Pass and the things he used to do around town. and Sir I mean,
1: Richard Burton.
0: These people were real. These people did have an impact as, as societal figures. And Richard Haney is kind of like an extension of that in terms of fiction. And, I mean, you know, if you think about just just that point I was trying to make about how, how the, the zeitgeist has maybe, maybe kind of <clears throat> forced us into a corner when it comes to reading now, like... Why does crime have to be serious and dark And sort of like um, You know void of real Or just the serious Dark realistic thing Like I, I've never like Do we need to take it seriously And consign it to detectives and ruined marriage brokers And I don't know like um, Smoky cynical uh, de- Detective departments And corrupt P- PD you know or Police departments and stuff like I mean, Hitchcock, Hitchcock always said that murder can be fun, right? And that was his big thing. And I feel like this idea of being on the run is, is exciting enough to be engaging. And I mean, yeah, okay, it doesn't apologize for anything or try to kind of broadcast the irony. And maybe he could do a better job of that because some of these coincidences are just bonkers and ridiculous. But, <laughs> but the, action, the action is easy to follow. And maybe... Maybe the truth is that this is just a fun story, and 110 years ago, it didn't need to be dark and serious to be good. It didn't need to be. No. You know?
1: And as someone, you know, who, like, reads a lot of comic books, particularly, like, like superhero comic books as well, uh, I should kind of give this the same sort of... Uh, ch- like chance in the ring as I would give any others if I'm comparing mm-hmm. them on a literary level. And that's the thing is like we expect things to be because I think in this day and age now, because we're so, I guess, maybe evolved in, in morally m- morally speaking and, uh, you know, in the world is a different place. We're not, we, we don't envision the colonial world that existed at this time where there's such escapism and and these things weren't, and, and the idea of like literary um. Where the idea of, of, of you know like oh being a good writer or telling a good a good novel was mm-hmm. only the real interest of academics. It wasn't the interest of of, yeah, of, of Joe public. Soldier, yeah. 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 Joel yeah. Soldier, or, or you know or or Lucy Laundress, right? <laughs> uh, it, it was <laughs> I like what you did so there. Yeah, like, that's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will think of Lucy Lawless, but then Lucy Laundress works well, I suppose too, right? I'm just I'm just picturing Lucy Lawless with a, with a Cockney accent now uh no doubt that she's probably used a cockney accent before Mm -hmm. but um exactly like maybe we do have those expectations when it comes to these kind of novels and we need to kind of return to the idea when it was written and stuff Mm -hmm. right so Mm -hmm. i I totally get that and you make a really good point there does it affect the overall tale of the story Mm -hmm. Um, as again suspension of disbelief is a big factor here and you got to know like how many mooring cables do you need to, hold, to stay on the ground with the story, right? <laughs> Absolutely.
0: But, you know, one thing I do want to give the story credit for is, is its shameless and very upfront characterization. Like, the, the expository characterization from the very first page is so direct, you know? Like, I'm bored. I'm unhappy. I'm ready to just cash in and huh. go out of here. It's setting up Richard Haney as a guy who is asking for trouble and he gets trouble. And so... You know, you, you know, you've got your dramatic or your sort of showing characterization, which is where the actions and the dialogue up. show a character. Whereas here we've yeah. got the expository characterization because we are told by Handy himself how he's feeling at the start of the story, what he wants to accomplish with the, his time in London, versus what's actually going on, and that he just he just wants something to excite him, you know, and he gets it. Yeah. And so yeah, the setup, I the can... setup is good. The setup is very good. Uh, this is not a story that's going to move slow. Hanny tells us who he is from the very start. The adventure is is perfectly is perfectly introduced. And throughout the story, you know, Hanny does often remark how ridiculous it is. He can't believe how lucky he's been. And yeah, that reinforces the reward theme in the story too, of risk. And if you want to extend it to the military, you know, soldiers taking risks, trusting in your your ambitions and all of that stuff. But I ask you seriously, what the hell is Marmaduke Jopley doing riding around in a car in the southwest of Scotland outside of London? Like, you could be forgiven for for thinking that he's part of the Blackstone conspiracy, because what the hell is he doing? But again, like, this brings me back again, buddy, to what I said in the summary. I have a theory
1: about him. I'll let you know.
0: But um, Buckins Britain is a Britain of like 20 people. Right? (laughs) And it's shrunk in size. Very small. Uh, Uh, Very small. I've
1: been to Scotland and it's not that small as he thinks it looked to be.
0: I mean everyone apart from the locals in the stories in the story here seems to be involved somehow in in the conspiracy. No one else lives in, in, in the UK, right? Anyway, my my final point on the on the investigation. I mean we're talking our way through it, but it's a fun book. I mean, there's a few lulls in the action, but almost every chapter really does defy the odds in some way. And that does demand an awful lot of that suspension of disbelief, and it's too much. But the verdict depends largely on how much flash-in-the-pan adventure fiction you like in a story. Um, I really do like how Buck titles these chapters like Sherlock Holmes stories, you know, the literary innkeeper, the radical candidate, the... uh, the And he
1: was releasing it in pieces too, Yeah, he was serializing it In Blackwood Magazine first, right? It's really
0: cool. It's really cool. But anyway, um, I got to admit, I had fun reading the story. I'd read it before, but it was nice coming back to it, despite my gripes about the plot leapfrogging from one scene of, you know, coincidence to another, (laughs) and the fact that I don't think he... I, I don't think that he needed to do this in the first place, because if he had let the authorities in on it when Scudder died, I don't think he would have been hung up and drawn for it. You know, I think he would have, yeah. I think he could have found another way to to, to go about things, but Hey, whatever I went, Speaking I went three and a half for my investigation.
1: I was, I was three. I'm happy with that, Mark. I, I think it's not generous. It's not too generous and it's worthy of to me of the story that, that I received and it's not a bad mark either. No, not so at all. It shows that I enjoyed it. Yeah, it shows absolutely. that I was entertained and I was able to pick up the subtle variations of the mm-hmm. story in terms of. Sorry, you know, I, I was able to pick up the subtleties of the story in terms of what Bucking is doing here with it. And so I, I played along in, in mm-hmm. that fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> just to think of the overall investigation and the story, uh, what would you say is the most preposterous like, moment in this story, like, that just really sort of went... Is it simply just, like, him meeting these random people and... Or is it something else, you know, that he would have survived or... I think... But to be fair, in the action sequences, he doesn't really get in a situation where you don't believe that he wouldn't survive it.
0: Yeah. I think the most ridiculous thing in the story for me, uh, of all of the inclusions, is this marmaduke jopley like i don't know why this dude he knows from london is is cruising around southwest scotland just randomly on the road that he happens to be fixing in disguise that to me is just bonkers uh, like why? I wonder if that's why? sort
1: of an indictment on Buckin's part of like American capitalism or capitalism in general. Join mm. this like the like the people who are you know who are just making money off the soldiers, off the, the misery of others, and mm-hmm. they're just and they're just being Maybe. like puffed up farts and and, <laughs> and 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 think about the time when they were, when this was published. America hadn't joined the war yet; they were still isolationist, uh, even in this war, and they didn't join until like the Lusitania, and um, uh, there was another incident. Yeah. yeah yeah there was another there was another incident as as well uh, whereas like the British of course have deep parapatriotic roots in World War one uh, even after you know they realized it would be much longer than they thought it would be right so
0: yeah you might be onto something anyway you went for a three I went for a three and a half um let's move on to the perpetrators so Hattie has but two opponents here, right? Like, as is often the case in the great Hitchcock films that are built off this sort of trope, he has to fight the authorities from whom he's on the run, biding time. And he also has the Blackstone German spy ring, who want to remove all trace of their work in the country, including Scudder's contacts and all of that sort of stuff. Somehow, Josh, somehow we know that the authorities will be the lesser of these two forces, even though they work in the background, they're not as exposed a, a combatant in this game as the Blackstone figures are. Um, but they are there in that prototypical Hitchcockian way, and they do cause problems that, you know, he needs to run away from. But, uh, you know, I the man with the lisp and the hooded hawk-like eyes, the old man in disguise a couple of times, you know, he's, he's probably the, the chief perpetrator, if, if indeed we can say there is one. He's never really introduced, apart from the scene in the cottage where he's under disguise. When he drops the game at the end, we only have a few smarmy words issued in German and then, you know, translated in... uh in his own English, but he—he he, he remains a minor villain, doesn't he? He's just part of something he bigger. Is. He's emblematic, and ultimately, I guess, I feel that the villains here are just a little faceless. And I get it, right? Like yes. that's the point—you can't see the troops across no man's land either. Also,
1: dehumanizes but the enemy for you as well. Totally,
0: it dehumanizes the enemy, makes them easier to shoot, and
1: the Huns are going to eat your children.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, we don't get an awful lot to hang our hats onto here about the Blackstone Ring no. or anything else. It is, like you said, just dehumanized and distant. And you know, Marmaduke Jopley is described for us more <laughs> realistically. Yeah,
1: he, he is. The, he is the true villain of the piece, <laughs> in my opinion. Is Marmaduke Jopley? In fact, I think he's still mastermizing. He's still masterminding the German spy ring. Well, that would explain why. That
0: would explain why he's driving around South Southwest Scotland.
1: Exactly, like it isn't. It's clear as day. Like he's clearly like this is like a smokescreen for whatever operation he's truly under, which is the, the, the destruction within of the British Empire. That's what he's doing.
0: Yeah, here we Capitalism. are. Here we are, me and you, speaking about you know these stories and his character in a, in a laughing way. But maybe he shows up in the next one as like a grand <laughs> ringmaster of something. Who knows? If-
1: you know what? If that's the case, if I if I just like peek ahead and see if he's in it, I'm totally getting the next book because I need to see more Marmaduke.
0: <laughs> Something I've never said before. Anyway, I felt the perpetrators were just kind of bland for that reason. I went two and a half. I passed them on, on merit, on credit, really. Good grace. Good grace. I gave him a passing passing score.
1: I didn't even really think about it. I just went 2.5 with those oh, okay, so, right. for those guys. okay, right. No, I, I thought about it. That's <laughs>
0: okay, not true. Right. No, I know what you I mean.
1: Think, Two and a half is is fine. They were, they had a presence in the story. There was some evil force. You could tell, like they added suspense to the story, and you knew they were up to something. There was this black evil surrounding Hane and what was going on. And I did admit that I was intrigued to see what their ultimate plan was. And um, in the end, now that I I think about it, it was really just the capture of their spy ring. Whether or not they succeeded doesn't make a difference because, I mean, okay. Sad Greek, the pre- Greek premier was killed, but England still stands. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know what I mean? Yeah, I Karolides get you. is replaceable.
0: How about Environs, my friend? Five points up for Environs.
1: This was probably my highest mark of the whole review mm-hmm. of our pipes with uh, the Thirty Nine Steps. I gave Environs a four.
0: Okay, cool. Talk to me just for a minute about that.
1: The vivid descriptions of the, of the Scottish landscape, of London, yeah. of just this just how he described, you know, the places where he was hiding, the the quarters of the various people. Uh,
0: it's engaging, isn't like, it?
1: Yeah, it was engaging. It was a very good travel log, and I can see some of Ian Fleming in that too was just a description of the landscapes, and I I felt that you could visualize everything that was going on in the story. The descriptions weren't overly poetic. Like, there wasn't really a lot of pathetic fallacy or anything really to... No, no,
0: not at all. Very direct, wasn't it? Like, he he knows his species of plants. He knows his trees. And there's that sort of, um, there's that naturalist guide through this stuff, which, as you say, it is not poetic at all. It's not ornate. And he knows his it's homeland. Yeah, he yeah he does. He does.
1: Yeah, he knows his mother. His he knows where the lots of heather, lots mm-hmm. of heather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Surprisingly, no thistles. But I'm sure. That, I'm sure he must have bumped into a thistle now and then.
0: Oh yeah, he have scraped himself against a thistle or two. Right. So you went for a four. I was just below you at a three point five, and I felt one of the things that let it down a bit was the lack of interior design. You know, we don't get mm. we don't get a lot of period descriptions here, and perhaps that's not important because. I don't know if um, you know. I, I don't know if can make is not, back
1: home smell bad.
0: Well, look bad. that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. But we get some crafting smells and decorations inside kitchens and such. But you know, you think about that scene where he goes to Harry Bolevante's place and they sit down. He sits down, has a meal of like nice food, and and this um, what is it? He has he has port, quite expensive port after dinner. You know, we don't really get a lot more than just what's on the label description of these places, like no description of the wood, the table, the fire. It's just, you know, there's a table, you know, there's a fire, you know, there's champagne glasses. But I would like to have been treated a little bit more to those delicacies, I think, in, in the narration. Now, maybe Buchan had a reason why in terms of um, in terms of writing for the troops that he didn't want to make too...
1: Look too ostentatious yeah, for the upper classes. Yeah. I, but I don't know. I don't he know. describes his apartment pretty fairly, as well Delance, as, for you know. example... Sir Harry's place and mm-hmm. um with Sir Harry? Yeah, Sir Harry.
0: Yeah, there's a Harry uh, and Sir Walter.
1: Sir Walter, yeah. But and, oh, yeah. and also his description of the uh the house of the of the bald man, the bald mm-hmm. archaeologists mm-hmm. are that's, are, that's are well done. eyes. Yeah. yeah. I think that was like a set piece and if you look at it in a movie context where like it's a set piece. There, It has a lot of functionality in the story. It's going to be blown up. Mm-hmm. So you want to make the destruction of that place and the escape from that place. You want to make that place significant. You want to describe it because Hane was there for the longest time and mm-hmm. he was in a set, he was in a stressful situation when he was there. So it, it takes yeah, good functionality point. in the narrative over other locations, right? But even for like sure. his apartment though, like I like the idea of like the front hall in his apartment and... Uh how he was eating like crackers from the cupboard for his lunch uh mm-hmm. for his for his breakfast and then you have like the body on the floor with the knife in it and the shroud covering it and then you have the milkman uh thats, that's like and the everyday life and uh like so there was you know elements but three and a half is good as and so is four it depends mm-hmm. upon how well those elements struck you
0: mm-hmm. yeah Well, this is my neck of the woods. Southwest Scotland is my neck of the woods, and I could certainly recognize some of the descriptions. I know Bucken isn't imagining, you know, he's not imagining an echo chamber, right? Like, what what does this place look like? He's not in... Yes. Anyway. All right, so you're a four and I'm a 3.5. Let's finish up, pal, with uh, supporting cast or secondary players. What do you think here?
1: I think a three is a good mark. Uh, uh, The supporting characters as, as, you know, as deus ex machina as they were... I did enjoy them. I enjoyed the the Roadman. I enjoyed Sir Harry and Sir Walter. I, you know, I I like I liked how the Milkman Scudder was kind of an interesting individual. There was more to him than meets the eye, as we learn. I wish we could learn more about him. Yeah, me maybe too. Maybe if maybe if he hadn't died straight off, and or we got to know him a little bit better before things went down, that would have been interesting, and would have been a, a good time too to 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 explore Hane himself as a character, but. The, the supporting characters all worked for the narrative. uh They all did their jobs, you know, mm-hmm. like actors yeah. would in those scenarios. And
0: did you have they, any favorites? Any any characters that uh, you kind of took I'm away? Gonna, I'm,
1: I, you're going to hate me for this, man, but I love jopli I love Merlot. Oh, Ruth, really? Man. He's he's the guy you like huh? he, he was just like one of those. I, I don't know. It's just Prats. like seeing. It's just a prat and just a fun character and. It, it, it's sure, always yeah. good to have a, a good bully and there just wasn't anyone in the villainy except for like the bald man and maybe the young guy who they go back to a bit that seemed more, <laughs> I, I just kind of wish Dropley was involved a bit more because it seemed more obvious, but the fact that he knew him from before just kind of like indicates to me that like, is this guy in it? It confused me whether that uh, Henné, is he in the lower class? Is he in the middle class or is he connected to the upper class? Like, he rubs elbows with certain people, so...
0: Well, I mean, his dad got him a place to work with the South African company, yeah. or the British South African company. so he African
1: knows company. people. Of course. So he, so he knows people. Yeah, and he he's... Inter- people, and but he, he would he, still be considered middle class, though. He's definitely, yeah. like, middle class. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Upper middle class, for sure. Yeah, because he's attending all these champagne lunches and ladies' socials and things, and he's being invited to give speeches places. And he's and he, bored. And he's bored with all of that. So, come on, he's in... in yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think the water I don't think the gulf between him and Jopli is all that big, to be honest.
1: Yeah, he's bored because he wants to go out and on an adventure, just like the boys wanted to go to World War. You know, go out, go out onto the Western Front and uh-huh. chase off the Hun for the for, for you know for for England, right? Yeah. That's the that's that's the whole situation. There is that they want to <laughs> emphasize that Champ, you know champagne socials are great and money is great for people like <laughs> Jopli, but what really matters is. Queen and country, or yeah. king and country.
0: Well, that yeah. that's the vibe, and uh, Bucken has delivered a story that certainly communicates that point. Um, I, I don't know if you felt this way. I mean, you say you, you like Jopley, so maybe not. But I felt, Josh, that you know, the further away <clears throat> from Southwest Scotland we get, or rather, the closer to London we get, the the more the characters are just cardboard cutouts of like what you would expect to see. Okay, here's like you know, here's a knighted figure of the gentry. He's like this. Mm-hmm. Here's a, you know, a politician giving a speech. He's like that. Whereas up in Scotland, you get these interesting, these rural characters like Alex Turnbull, you know, the road mender. Turnbull, yeah. He, he's interesting because, you know, he's he's quite honest with um, <laughs> with Annie about not wanting to lose his job over being hung over. <laughs> the new works yeah. guy comes. Like, I just feel like these are the people that we meet. And as we, I don't know if... It's too much to say that Buckin is trying to lay in this subtle point about, you know, Scottish culture versus, you know, English urban London landscapes or personnel. I know that's reaching a bit, but um, it just feels like cops are cops, foreign dignitaries are foreign dignitaries. Only the Scots characters have got actual dimension in the story. I do feel like well, he knows,
1: I, He writes about what he knows and uh, what he, what's closer to him mm. in that sense. But again, if he's written as a propaganda piece, as we yeah. as, as we we've, as we've concluded here, it's possible that he also wanted to instill the hierarchy that existed at the time and remind the soldiers of that of who's in charge and who's looking after you and all this sort of stuff. And then he kind of makes you know the Scottish seem very bucolic and colonial and not you know like. You're, they're here, they're working on the road, and they're having a terrible existence and getting drunk, whereas you should be on the front line serving your country clean and sober, ready to go <laughs> over the trenches as soon as they blow the whistle, you know? So This is, this again, is an interesting
0: be- conversation, you know, buddy. It really is because yeah. it, it, it. I feel like it's moving a little bit from us doing a book review to almost like the realm of university lecture where we would be teaching this book as like, you know, England in the 1910s. Like this would be a book that would would, would fit on Fo- a syllabus of... Classism. Pro- yeah, propaganda. Like yeah. I, I haven't read so much into that propaganda side of things as you have, but I'm really enjoying listening to you talk through it because I think you're offering a, a really neat uh, lens through which to view this this story and its reception.
1: That could be because I've been reading a lot of non-fiction Um, breakdowns of classical and 19th century 20th century politics um, for you know for my own research and and whatnot and so I'm just I'm just aware of those dynamics and that's good and I and I I spot them as soon as they're there and that's what I see when I read this book and knowing about you know Buckingham did actually make this as a propaganda piece then Mm -hmm. it it, Mm -hmm. makes total sense and it's all clicking on
0: yeah you know
1: it's firing on all it's firing on all four cylinders for me here
0: i just wonder then if if i represent in this discussion the everyman who's going to pick up the the story without knowing or digging or wanting to look too much into that and you represent maybe the more learned contextual reader who understands this as a piece of propaganda there's something in it for both of us to appreciate whether it's going to be a high-scoring novel or not you know um, the Definitely. other the other character, the last character really I'm going to mention is this dude who's not a character at all, but instead is a figure that's remembered a couple of times by Hanni. And that's Peter Pienaar, the guide, the best scout in Rhodesia, who, Rhodesia, who almo- yeah. almost like a soothsayer, he kind of, you know, he sinks and slips in and out of the story, giving advice that Hanni Use uses.
1: Use the forest, Richard. <laughs> yeah, it's not dissimilar
0: to that, is it? Like, particularly at the end where where he calls the bluff and he wins in revealing the baddies because doubt is starting to creep into Hanny at the end and there's some nice tension built there at the end of the story because he's thinking of well shit maybe i've got it wrong you know um yeah. but he remembers what PNR told him you know you see things through and you you know you fight your point and you don't back down and i like that i think that's really cool don't. Uh, and there's also that character I liked just at the end there in um, Walter Bullivant's Sir Walter's office. The, uh, the, French? The, French, the French guy. Yeah, the French ambassador, or the French um, politician. Got to make
1: her allies look competent and uh, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and, and effable,
0: right? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was kind of transparent. You know, even if you're not looking for that, it's there, very transparent. But I liked him. Yeah. He was cool. It was nice to see that sort of uh, that token nod of the cap.
1: Yeah, it was a token nod at the cap for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, buddy, look, your total for the thirty-nine steps is fifteen. We said at the outset that this was going to be a quick episode, and we've just creeped over an hour. But I think it's been—I uh, think it's been a lot of fun. I, w- I was a sixteen point five overall. So here's one of those rare we occasions—we're pretty, pretty close. But I did like the story a noticeable amount more than you. Yeah. I think the—I um, think the area of the principle my, maybe I, is where we disagreed the most, but. yeah.
1: Yeah, the principle I think is, is I think is where we varied the most yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's that that one percent difference, right? So mm-hmm, that's what mm-hmm. kind of made it. <laughs> because to me, I I got to the point where I realized, okay, I'm I'm reading this. I'm dissociating myself from this emotionally. I'm not really. I'm one of those people who I love escaping into worlds. You know, I mm-hmm. like reading fantasy and science fiction and yeah. I really love escaping. I love I love being I love escapism. And I found with this story is that I was just seeing so many so much of the writing on the wall and what this story was trying to be and what it was doing that it was like too there was an agenda behind it, and it kind of took me out of the story. Mm. It's kind of like the complaint that some people have nowadays that things are too woke or or you know they see this a feminist agenda or they see this type of agenda or this kind of agenda and While I don't think that exists wholeheartedly in every text that's made, you could definitely feel that there was some governing force behind this book and what it was mm. what it was trying to do. And I think that kind of just took me out of the story just a little bit more for me to enjoy it. Sure, I see that. I do appreciate your points about Richard, though, and I can see more of his character. And you did remind me, too, about how in the beginning, how he was bored and tired. And I remember when I first read it, start, started reading the book, I'm like, okay, I think I could like this guy. I, th- I think this guy's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's kind of like a, a much more jaded form of Watson. You know, he may not be as banal as Watson in, in, in his own mm. way, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know that's sacrilege to say Watson is banal, but <laughs> kind of is. We've earned kinda the right is. to
0: say that. We've earned the right to say that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He does shoot a Unless lot of dogs, it's like- but...
1: He does shoot a lot of dogs. That's definitely true.
0: And while that is a Victorian thing, I don't know it would classify as banal.
1: Uh, true, 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 true. Anyway,
0: look, that, this was this was good fun talking our way through this. And, you know, I, I was thinking, Josh, um, just before we sign off and preview our next episode, Halloween is just around the corner. Have you got any recommendations, uh, quick recommendations for good Halloween stories, long or short?
1: Oh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah, you love you that you haven't one. read it. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a great one. Uh, horror wise, I haven't read a lot of Stephen King except for like Later and of course, um, Late uh, Salem's Lot. Stand, but The Stand isn't really a uh, quick read uh, type no. of Halloween horror. So I, re- I, re- I, yeah, I would definitely go for either uh, one that I would recommend. It's a creepy read, and it freaked me out when I read it in university. Is Matthew Lewis's The Monk. Yeah, yeah. If, if you want a almost a pulpy gothic narrative from the 19th century, check out that bad boy. Uh, good one. It, It's something else. Nice word. But Bram Stoker's Dracula, if you haven't read it, absolutely uh, the one to go to.
0: Superb. Um, I'm going to recommend a little Halloween read here myself, buddy. I'm going to recommend Henry James' Turn of the Screw, a great ghost oh, story novella great psychological thriller. Um, and another one as well. Um, I, I really enjoy reading it each time this year. I study it with my advanced hires here at school. I do um, Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Uh, the full text, that autumnal text. It, you know, it's not technically a horror story, but it uh, it fits so nicely with the, the harvest season, the autumn colors and missing home as I do. I'm going to go for those two. But uh,
1: yeah, you'd hate my yeah. view, right? Well, you probably love the view that I have right now of like mm. the trees and whatnot. I would, I would like oh, for red sure, and I gold yeah. and
0: the Ottawa Valley is really, really, really nice this time of year. Yeah. Um, and in terms of Sherlock Holmes stories uh, off the cuff, I would say, let's see.
1: Uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah. Copper Beach is also a good one. We, Copper Beaches is good. We've yep. it all. We've vetted we all. Yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, I think another good horror story. Double, Not that vampire foot
0: Is quite a creepy one. Yeah, the Sussex Vampire is De- misleading title. <laughs> Very misleading yeah. title.
1: The adaptation was even worse. I watched that. I couldn't. I couldn't finish it. It was too. It was so terrible. <laughs> uh, That's okay. But yeah, that, no, no problem. I'm trying to think of another good horror. No, no. You mentioned The Turn of the Screw. Now I know there was an adaptation with Natasha Richardson from a long time ago. That that was that was really good. Um, what that really reminded me of a movie that I think that should be celebrated more in the horror season that a lot of people haven't seen mm-hmm. is, uh, Alejandro Aminabar is the others, uh, mm-hmm, Nicole mm-hmm. Kidman. Yeah. That is that a, good is a really good yeah. horror story and a really cool twist at the end. It's not like an M like M night Shyamalan twist where mm-hmm. once you learn the end, then that's it. And there's nothing else to the story beforehand. It's very good in terms of how it's directed and watched. Mm-hmm. Um, the conjuring, the first one anyways, is also a good, it's a good horror movie. um, and
0: I'm going to cast yeah,
1: there's back... there's
0: some good ones out there. I, I, I'm going to pull out one here that... Uh, it, it's it's a classic, and maybe a popular classic, but I think it deserves a, a bit of credit. I'm, I'm going to go for uh, Poltergeist, the original Poltergeist, mm. the first one, you know? Mm, that, uh, Craig T. Nelson, a great Jerry Goldsmith score, and uh, produced by, although many would argue directed by Spielberg, because he had so much control, he had to take over some of the direction in that movie. It's a Spielberg film that no one knows about, Poltergeist. Really, really good film. Anyway,
1: <clears throat> and you probably won't disagree with me. Uh, go on, uh, go on Amazon. The X Files is available on Amazon, yeah. at least in in North America, and just find like a classic uh, X Files standalone. Mm-hmm. Um, Home, the, the season four episode with Dehan you know, Deverlette's season three, d season d season mm-hmm. season two, season two. Yeah, yeah. that one's. That one's really good. Uh, there's a couple of great X-Files standalones. In fact, shout, just buddy. look for good any shout. episode written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong and you're mm-hmm. bound to get a good one. Yeah,
0: so. that's a great shout for Halloween. Easy, quick, digestible shows and stories there for you. Yeah. Um, right, buddy. Well, look, uh, just before we sign off and wish our, our listeners a, a farewell, um, what's coming up next, my good man, on Light in the Pipes? So
1: we are delving into the very popular author, Michael Connolly, mm-hmm. and his character Hieronymus Bosch, um i've heard of the tv series i didn't mm-hmm. know that it was the michael connelly who was the writer i got him and james patterson mixed up um because i think james patterson is alec cross mm-hmm. uh and to an extension castle uh because he was like a behind that he was behind that show and uh but what i've read about him is he's a very marlowian type character uh So I'm looking forward to experiencing that in a modern day setting. And I've heard good things about it.
0: Mm -hmm, Yeah. The Black Echo will be our first story in the Bosch cycle. And that'll be I got to
1: tell you, for for a title, that just grabs me right away. Like, what is the Black Echo? I know, right? So it it sounds like it just Mm -hmm. has connotations of like noir, but it also has connotations of something much more, maybe something psychological, something very deep and it just sounds mm-hmm. really intriguing to me, so I'm looking forward to, to reading that.
0: Yeah, so maybe, listeners, if uh, if you haven't yet dipped your toes into the waters of Michael Connolly's Bosch, then you can pick up The Black Echo and come back here in a few weeks' time, and, and you can share in our review. Let us know what you think. And as always, you can pick us up on the socials at lightingpipes at gmail.com or our Instagram page, and uh, we, uh, we wish you a very happy Halloween and happy reading until we see you again. Thanks, buddy. This was good fun today. Take care.
1: Later.